Let's put our hands together for the Lord Jesus. You can add a shout unto the name of the Lord. Because the Lord has been so gracious to us and he has blessed us. Hallelujah. I think that God has been, I don't know how I would describe the goodness of the Lord that has been shown to me in all the times and in all the years that I have lived as a human being on earth. But today is also another special and a privileged day. But let me also use this opportunity to thank my brother, and the wife, and the leadership of Dansuman PRWC, and then the organizers of the School of Marriage. We want to bless everybody seated here. I see my, my mother, the women's director in the house, we want to celebrate her. And we want, I see quite few faces that are very familiar. And I have been here before uh, on few occasions. The topic that is being given to me to speak on is marriage vow. And for me, the issue of vows is a very important and a dear subject on my heart. And so vows have been something I have been researching on for some time now. And I have preached on marriage vows on few occasions and even in, on one very occasion I was here in this auditorium when I spoke on marriage vows during a wedding, a wedding ceremony. Last three years or so, when we were doing the Royals Conference, I also spoke on chieftaincy vows, the vows that our chiefs take and their implication. So the issue of vow has been a burden and an important subject on my heart for a very long time. And also the issue of marriage, I see it as a very important subject. And so to say that you are speaking on marriage vow is a very difficult assignment for me because I will need about one month to be able to do justice to some of the things I have been thinking about. And now I have just 45 minutes to do all. But I believe that God will give me grace to do just a little. And as much as possible, I wouldn't want to preach this morning. I would want to see if we can, we can do a reading. I'll be reading quite a lot of scriptures and just drawing your attention to things that we should be doing as we read. And so let me say, it's going to be a kind of teaching, not a preaching. So you wouldn't ex um, um, see the normal shouting and preaching kind of style this morning because it's a subject that I think that when we get it right, so many things will change about us. Praise the Lord. So today we are looking at marriage vows, but let me just take it right from the beginning to say that when we talk about vows from Christian perspective, we should be aware that God himself is very, very interested and conscious of every vow that we take. Even before we come to vows, the Bible tells us that God is conscious of every word that we speak because words are very powerful. 
words are very, very powerful. And the Bible even says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. That fruit they are talking about is not always positive. It can be a positive fruit. <laughs> it can be a negative fruit. Depending upon how you speak, what you speak, and your actions after the speaking. That is why anytime you want to speak, you want to be very conscious and reflective of what you speak. In fact, right from Bible times, we have read so many stories about vows that people have taken and the implications of those vows and how God himself even reacted to some of these vows. But to also give us um, a little understanding or, or just revise our memory, we want to look at what vows would mean. And um, let me try a very simple definition to say that vows are declaration of facts or a solemn declaration or let me say a promise that somebody could make to another person or an individual could make to an institution or a group of people could make to another set of people. And most of the times, such promises are ratified with an oath or a vow. Now, when vows are taken, they become very powerful and binding on the person who takes the vow. And so the content of what you are taking as a vow becomes very crucial because whatever you take is binding on you. Whatever you have promised that you would do is binding on you. And what makes it even more serious is when you invoke God into that vow and ask God to take control or God to come in or God to help you. Or some of the vows are declared in the name of God Almighty. And when that happens, God stands by those words. And he wants to make sure that because his name is attached to those vows, everything that he will do to make sure that you succeed in the vows you have taken, God will do it. But at the same time, because he does not forget all the words that you have said in the vow, God will never forget even if you have forgotten. And so the moment you drift away from those vows you have taken, God becomes very angry because you said them yourself. It is clear from my observation as a pastor, from the little pastoring I have made, that most of the time when people are going to marry, and this one will be very good for the young people who are yet to marry, most of the time when people are going to marry and they say they are preparing for their marriage, what they are actually doing is preparing for two ceremonies. They are preparing for their customary marriage ceremony and their wedding ceremony. Frankly speaking, most of the young people, when they say we are preparing for marriage, they are really preparing for the ceremonies rather than the marriage. So people don't prepare actually for marriage. They prepare for these ceremonies. So they have a very wonderful, what they call engagement, very wonderful customary marriage or engagement. Then they have a flamboyant and a grandiose wedding. And when they finish, they are confused because they have not prepared for the rest of what happens after that. But you see, preparing for marriage is preparing for life. 
Preparing for marriage is preparing for life. La marriage is a lifelong institution which we, we actually know. And so anytime we enter into marriage, we should understand that we are entering into marriage for life. That is why I always say that it is good for people who are entering into marriage to try as much as possible and be sure that all that they are thinking about and all that they want to do, they mean them. And for the young people, let me tell you that expectations about marriage are completely, completely and totally different from realities in marriage. There is what we call the real thing when you marry. And there is what we call expectations. Just as every human being is unique and different, so is every marriage unique and different. When you are even going through counseling, I will hint some few things about counseling quickly and then move back to my subject vow. You, you share, sometimes we as counselors will share some experiences with you and give you some examples. But in most cases, you realize that those examples are very good because they serve as a guide. But you may never go through any of the things they shared with you. You will have your unique and peculiar experiences. Every marriage is unique and every marriage is different. Then I have also come to realize that there is no marriage that cannot work. Hello? There is no marriage that cannot work. The only thing that doesn't make marriages work is when people don't have the right understanding of marriage. And when people enter into marriage with the wrong motives, it is not about character. It is not even about compatibility. I, I tell people that, you see, Compatibility, I don't believe that two people can ever be compatible. No two people can ever be compatible. My wife and I have married for the past 16 years. We are getting close to our 17th anniversary. And we are still not compatible. And we don't even want to be compatible. We have agreed that we should not be compatible. How, why should we be compatible? When she is different. Being compatible means that you want me to become a photocopy of her or she become a photocopy of me then we can be compatible I want her to be who she is and me who I am let us bring our diversity together and let's celebrate then you understand marriage you enjoy marriage and so this becomes very important now what you can do let me let me speak to the young people little then I come back to the adult what you can do for the young people when you want to marry is that let your counselors, your trusted counselors, your pastors and your church leaders, those you trust, let them know about your plans. I tell my church members that even if you are praying for marriage and you have not grabbed yet, a young man, there is nothing wrong to walk to your counselor or your pastor and tell him that, Pastor, I think I'm of age. I want to marry in the next few years. So I have started praying. Can you pray with me? Counseling has started already. Once you inform pastor that you are searching, you are praying. You are thinking about marriage. Your counselors or pastor will be praying. These are informal. Nobody will call you before marriage committee at this point. But at least you have informed your leader that this is what you are thinking about. And so immediately you grab. Or even in my case, when I saw, before I even proposed, I went and told my pastor. <laughs> immediately you grab. Go to pastor and say, pastor, I have grabbed. But I'm not ready yet. Then, you see, these things are informal, but they are very helpful. Because me, when you come to me and tell me you have grabbed and you are not ready yet, I'm so excited about it. 
What I help you to understand informally at this point is the difference between we will marry and we have married. They are two different things. And so once you get that footing right, that there is a difference between we will marry and we have married, then you know how to begin your journey. Because sometimes young people behave when they are preparing to marry. Some of them behave as if they have married already. And so once I, I give you some of these lights, some of these guidelines, and of course, you continue to pray for such people. And when you are getting ready, you say, first, I think that I'm ready now. Within the next six months, seven months, I want to marry. Six months, seven months means you are ready now. Then we can start a formal, I can now tell you now, if you are ready, then go and put it into writing. Then the formal things will start. But sometimes young people will go and propose, do everything. They have even planned their marriage. Some of them have even sewn their wedding gown and everything. It's only left with the date, so they come and inform the presbytery that we want to marry. Before you start counseling with them, they have done all the things that would have been done already. And so there is not much help that you can be given. So young people, if you don't want to make the mistake that some of the adults have made, please declare your asset as early as possible. What did I say? So those of you who are thinking I have not yet declared your asset after here, Go see your elder, your counselor, your pastor, whoever you trust, you can talk to the person. Quickly go and start declaring your intentions and ask. And the ladies, you see, in our African society, it's not an easy thing for a lady to go and see a young man and propose. Few are able to do, but majority, in fact, our society doesn't give us that opportunity. But there is nothing wrong to go to pastor and say, Pastor, I think I am praying for and believing God for a partner. Pastor, can you pray with me? There is nothing wrong. Or go and tell your pastor's wife, soft mommy, I think that where I am now, I have got to the age I want to marry. I am praying and believing God. Mommy, can you pray with me? So soft mommy knew that. Immediately a young man comes, you say, Mama, somebody has come, but I'm not yet sure. Can you still pray with me so that the light will be clear? When you say yes, then you go and tell her, Mama, I have said yes. <laughs> Or you go and tell your counselor, I've said yet, but we are not ready yet. The same process will happen. May God give us grace. Now, I quickly want us to go to the Old Testament, a story that I think helps me to give a very good background of how God looks at vows, and then we look at that. Then after that, we look at our Church of Pentecost marriage vow. I'll be reading that vow here. Then we look at the pieces of words that are in the Church of Pentecost marriage vow. And then I can rest my case. So let's go to Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 9. We are going to read quite a lot from Joshua. So if the IT team can help me so we can be reading on the screen together. We are starting from verse 1. Joshua chapter 9. We are starting from verse 1. First we'll read up to verse 6. And then later we'll continue. If you have NLT, that should be fine. But if you don't, NIV is fine. So let's read. Now... Okay. Now all the kings west of Jordan, west of the Jordan River, heard about what God, what had happened. These were the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who live in the... Hey, what is happening? Have you changed it? And the Jebusites, who lived in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the coasts of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as north of the Lebanon mountain. Let's go. 
These kings combined their armies to fight as one against Joshua and the Israelites. But when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to deception to save themselves. They sent ambassadors to Joshua, loading their donkeys with withered saddlebags and old patched wineskins. They put on worn-out patched sandals and ragged clothes, and the bread they took with them was dry and moldy. Verse 6. When they arrived at the camp of Israel at Gilgal, they told Joshua and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant land to ask you to make a peace treaty with us. Amen. Now, this is the story about the Israelites when they left Egypt and finally God led them 40 years, so many things happened and they entered the promised land. After they entered the promised land, they went in actually, God told them that all the people there are giving you power to dislocate them and finish all of them. Destroy everybody and don't leave any one of them. Because if you leave them, they'll become thorns and they'll become troubles for you. So they were poised for power. And so the people in the land also heard about all that God has done for Israel from Egypt through the lands when they were coming. Even to the extent that when they got to the powerful city of Jericho, what happened to the walls of Jericho? They heard it. And the small city of Ai, what happened to them? They also heard it. So when the Israelites arrived, they were terrified. So they had a meeting and said that none of us will be able to fight against Israel. So let's bring our forces together. Maybe when we become one huge army, we can defeat them. Let me give a hint here that anytime the enemy attacks you, it means he's afraid of you. I didn't hear an amen. The enemy attacks always because he's afraid of us. Children of God, the enemy is always afraid. So the people were gathering themselves to fight Israel because they were afraid of Israel. But one of the tribes called the Gibeonites, they said that this plan is good, but these people, Israel, we know them. No matter how powerful we become, we may not be able to defeat them. So as for us, we are not part of that plan. So they left and they organized themselves that we will use deception. So they decided to go and deceive Joshua and the people of Israel so that they can make a treaty with them and ratify it with an oath and declare that they will never kill them. But they devised a means of doing that. So personally, what I realize is that if the enemy wants to fight you and he's afraid, and he knows that by fighting he cannot overpower you, he will use a scheme. And as, as, as a Christian who has studied theology for a little, I realize that Satan is more powerful in using schemes than attacks. So I don't really fear Satan's attacks, but I fear Satan's schemes, frankly speaking. I fear schemes because he can subtly deceive you and take you away. And sometimes Satan can also use marriage anyway to deceive you, take all your joy and destroy you. So what these people did was that they just put themselves together, took some old breads and things that could be considered as very um, worn out. And they went to Joshua and the people of Israel and told them that we have heard how well God has been with you. 
and this is what we want you to do. We have come from a distant land. Yes, from a distant land to ask you to make a peace treaty with us. So they want to make a vow. They want a promise. Let's go to verse 7. The Israelites replied to these Hivites, How do we know you don't live nearby? So that proposal that they brought, let me call it the marriage proposal. The Gibeonites have come to propose to Joshua and the people of Israel. And so this is the response from Joshua and his people. How do we know you don't live nearby? For if you do, you, we cannot make a treaty with you. So one question that comes to your mind quickly is that if somebody, a man comes to you and say, young woman, you look beautiful. You see the way they describe the thing. We heard all the wonderful things your God is doing. What you did to Jericho, we heard it. What you did to I, we heard it. And so we have come to serve you. So the young man comes to say, you look beautiful. You are the only mango in my tree, is that it? The only monitor for my CPU. And then they say all kinds of things. And the one I like best is that they say, I'll give you my heart and use carpentry. <laughs> so after they told you all that, then they say, will you marry me? All right. What questions come to your mind? Some people want to know that, don't you have any girlfriend? Don't you have a wife? So they try to ask questions. That is exactly what Joshua and his people well, how do we know that you don't live nearby? How do we know that what you are saying? The Bible says that many a man claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. Nobody will be able to find a faithful man because no man will ever approach a woman and tell her that, I hate you, I want to marry you. All of us will come and say, I love you. But if it is real, real love or something else, you may not know. Let's go to verse 8. Verse 8, move on. They replied, this is the Gibeonite replying, we are your servants. But who are you? Joshua demanded. Where do you come from? Interrogation. So go on and ask questions. They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country. We have heard of the might of the Lord your God and of all he did in Egypt. Go on. We have also heard what he did to the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, king of Shihon, king Shihon of Heshbon, and king Og of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Let's go. So our elders and all our people instructed us, take supplies for a long journey. Go meet with the people of Israel and tell them, we are your servant, please make a treaty with us please marry me so they have repeated it let's go this bread was hot from the ovens when we left our homes but now as you can see it is dry and moldy so the deceptions have come in in fact they took dry bread but they are saying that the bread was hot when we took it but now by the time we got here because of the distance some of them will come and tell you that I had a dream. I had a dream that you were falling from a tall tree and then I jumped and I grabbed you. I was just walking when all of a sudden a light flashed. Then I couldn't see again. And then somebody held my hand. When I opened my eyes, it was you. 
So they tell you all kinds of stories. That is what these people are doing now. Let's go on and hear their stories. Verse 13. These wise kings were new when we filled them, but now they are old and split open, and our clothing and sandals are worn out from our very, very long journey. One young man was telling me, he came to my house, and there were scratches by the side of his, his car. And he said, Pastor, because of this young lady, because of what she's doing to me, when I'm even driving, I am out of my senses. Look at how I'm going to hit my car. And I say, young man, you will die before your time. <laughs> because of a woman, you are hitting your car. Go ahead and hit more. <laughs> because the young woman says, I will marry you. So he's hitting his car everywhere. So they do all kinds of things. So the Israelites examined their food, comma, but they did not consult the Lord. This is where the problem is. So after the people wrapped them, after they yoked them and gave them all the nice things, then they went and examined, examined the bread, examined their clothing, examined their sandals. What do we examine now? When the young men want to marry, they want to look at the shape of the woman. Is it Coca-Cola or Fanta or beer bottle or what is it? Which bottle? So they examine the shapes, they examine the eyes, they examine the hair, they examine this kind. Then the young women, what do they examine? In our days, people were examining bicycles and, <laughs> and black and white TV. Now they want to see which car the man is driving. Okay, which phone are you using? Is it the yam or iPhone? So they examine so many things. But the real thing, inquiring of the Lord, consulting the Lord, most people fail to do. And that's exactly what um, Joshua and his people did. Let's move along. Then Joshua made a peace treaty with them and guaranteed their safety and the leaders of the community ratified their agreement with a binding oath without consulting the Lord. Anytime you go and make an oath without consulting the Lord, my friend, my brothers, my sisters, my fathers, you are in trouble. May God give us grace. May God give us grace. But there is something strange about this we'll see. Three days after making this treaty, the treaty, they learned that these people actually lived nearby, so it was a lie. They didn't come from any far country. The Israelites set out at once to investigate. So after inspecting the thing, even they didn't do a background investigation. So most of us, like we do in marriages, you, inv you just investigate the phone, the car, the person is driving, his house, the work he's doing, he's, he's a banker. That is enough. You don't even want to find out what church he attends. One lady even says that, oh, he's a Muslim, but he's a nice man. Eh, you go ahead. Go ahead. Some don't even ask. There was a young lady who wanted to marry. And then when she mentioned to my wife, my wife asked her, what church does the man attend? She doesn't know. And you have agreed to marry the person. You don't even know what church he attends. Whether he is a Christian or not, whether he is a Mormon or not, you don't even know. But you have accepted anyway because he has a nice car. One of them told the pastor that, 
Oh, the man says he's a Muslim, but I can still go to my church. He has no problem at all. Go ahead. All right. The Israelites set out to investigate and reached their towns in three days. The names of these towns were Gibeon, Kephira, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack the towns. For the Israelite leaders had made a vow to them in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, who stop. I'll stop there for some time. When they even realized that this vow we have taken was out of deception. If you go to legal terms, sometimes people, I don't know, I don't understand well, but I heard that if based on falsehood, somebody has made you make some vow, it is nullified. But this one, it is not. It is not. From biblical point of view, you can't say that he deceived me. No. They say we can't because we have made vow in the name of the Lord our God, the God of Israel. The people of Israel grumbled against their leaders because of the treaty. But the leaders replied, since we have sworn an oath in the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel, we cannot touch them. Full stop. So after you have made a vow, you are done. You are finished. Not that you are finished in the negative, negative sense. You are finished making the vow. And the rest of it, you have to live with it, positive or negative. But I have a good news for you in this. Even if there is a deception, after you have made a vow, something can be done. Not to reverse the vow anyway, to make that thing, that mistake, to work. Hallelujah. Um, yeah, I think we should. We should just jump from now because I'll be talking about a few other things somewhere. Let's go to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 5. Let's start from verse 5. Now, after they have made a vow, they realize that because of the vow, they cannot change their, their, their decision and they would have to just live with the people, no matter how the people grumbled. But the five Amorite kings combined their armies for a united attack. They moved all the troops into the place and attacked Gibeon. Now, the other nations who were planning together with Gibeon to go and fight Israel, when they realized that the Gibeonites have gone to make peace and they have left them, they realized that these people have weakened us. They have betrayed us. So before, we will not mind Israel now. Before we mind Israel, let's go and finish the Gibeonites. So the other kings decided to go and attack Gibeon, finish them first. Then they will face Israel. So let's see what happened. The men of Gibeon quickly sent messengers to Joshua at his camp in Gilgal. Don't abandon your servant now, they replied. Come at once. Save us. Help us. For all the Amorite kings who have, who live in the hill country have joined forces to attack us. Now when there is trouble with them, this is battle for Gibeon. They sent message to who? Israel. Because they have a treaty with them. Brothers and sisters, let me announce that when you make a vow with your wife, with your husband, every battle the other partner faces is the other person's battle. When your wife has a battle, 
you don't leave her. Even if she has made a mistake, you have to go and help her fight until she overcomes. After winning, you can sort out the issues and correct the wrongs. But in the midst of the battle, you have to support your wife. In the midst of the battle, you have to support your husband. I'm not saying that support your husband and your wife to go and do bad things. That's not what I'm saying. When there is danger, help the person. It is not the time of danger that we apportion blames. I told you not to do it. Did you see? Go and face it alone. No. When it is battle, you have made a vow. <laughs> the two of you should go and figure out how you can sort it. Let's go. Let's go. So Joshua and his entire army, not part, including his best warriors, left Gilgal and set out for Gibeon. Why are they going for Gibeon? Are they going to Gibeon? There is battle for Gibeon. And because they have a vow with them, Gibeonite battle has become Israelite battle. Let's move. Do not be afraid of them, the Lord said to Joshua. Who is speaking here? Why is God speaking? Because God is standing by the vow that they have made in his name. When Joshua responded to the request of the Gibeonite, God was happy. If you have made vow to them in my name and there is battle, go and fight them. I will be with you. So anytime your wife, your wife has problem and you stand behind her, God will be with you. Anytime your husband has problem and you stand be behind him, God will be with you. Because you have made a vow to the person in the name of the Lord, God will stand by to help you. Then God said, for I have given you victory over them. Not a single one of them will be able to stand up to you. Let's go quickly. Joshua traveled all night from Gilgal and took the Amorite armies by surprise. The Lord threw them into a panic and the Israelites slaughtered great numbers of them at Gibeon. Then the Israelites chased the enemy along the road to Beth Horon, killing them all along the way to Azekah and Makeda. Okay, let's move. As the Amorites retreated down the road from Beth Horon, the Lord destroyed them with a terrible hailstone. So listen. Now, the Israelites were striking the people, killing them, so they were running away. And I think some of them were so fast that they were able to escape the terror of Israel. Then God himself began to throw hailstone. <laughs> Look, when you stand behind each other, the battles that are beyond you, God will fight for you. God will fight for you. Where am I? Terrible hailstorm, hailstorm from heaven that, con that continued until they reached Azekah. The hail killed more of the enemy than the Israelites killed with the sword. So God even killed more of the enemy than they themselves killed. Put your hands together for the Lord. Let's move on. On that day, the Lord gave Israelites victory over the Amorites. That day, the Lord gave victory of uh, the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites. Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all the people of Israel. Now listen to the prayer Joshua prayed that day. This is not Israel battle. This is Gibeonite battle. But something happened that day. He said, 
Let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Aijalon. Let's move. So the sun stood still and the moon stayed in place until the nation of Israel had defeated its enemies. Is this even not recorded in the book of Joshua? The sun stayed in the middle of the sky and it did not set us on a normal, it did not set us on a normal day. I, I am so thrilled by this part of the story that God could do such a miracle when Israel was not fighting their own battle but just helping their servant. You see, some of the greatest miracles that will happen in your life is when you are supporting your spouse. I didn't hear an amen. A lot of people miss their miracles because they leave their spouses to go and fight battles alone. So you miss a lot of miracles. If you can only stand by whoever you have taken the vow with in times of difficulties, in good times, in bad times, in struggling moments, that is the time. I remember this gentleman who had a sickness that had been troubling him. And then he talked to the wife. The wife is like, ah, you like that kind of thing too much. Today my year, tomorrow my year. So the guy also got fed up and decided that when something is wrong, I won't tell my wife again. And beloved, when your husband or your wife get to that situation, it's dangerous. Because if I can't tell my wife that my here, my here, who should I tell? And so this gentleman was sick, went to hospital without informing the, the wife. I was looking for him. I went to the wife. Where is your husband? She doesn't know. The phone was off. It was the following day. Was it the following day? Yeah, that I got the man on phone. Where are you? He said, I'm on admission at the hospital. Ah, admission and your wife is not aware. He said, leave her. If I tell her, she'll be complaining. So I went and told the wife. And when we got to the hospital, there was dripping fire. You see the condition in which the man was. It was so bad. I tell you, beloved, when your husband comes, when your wife comes, even if she says that my finger is paining me, you know it's unrealistic. Or, or maybe my fingernails is paining or my hair is paining me. You just look at the fingernails and say, oh, fingernail, don't pain my wife. Oh, please, fingernail, stop, eh? <laughs> it will be worth That one alone is healing. That one alone is healing. <laughs> don't tell her, oh, Pesado, you like that too much. No, there is nothing like that. Every battle is for us. Let's go. 14. There has never been a day like this, this one, before or since, when the Lord answers such prayers. Surely, the Lord fought for Israel that day. There has never been a day, before then or after that, that God has answered such a prayer. I don't know if you have seen it before, that the sun has stood in the middle of the sky. Rest our case there. Let's now go to, um, Let's go quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 21 and then I will conclude there and quickly talk about the vow. I think my time is up. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 21. We'll read verse 1 and 2. 2 Samuel 21 verse 1 and 2. Something happened so many years after this vow. They decided to live with them and so they never killed them because of what the vow their leaders have taken, they live with them and God prospered Israel. God helped Israel. God blessed Israel because they live within the words they have spoken. But so many years after when Saul became king, let's see what happened. Now even this one we are reading was David's time. 
but the events of what we are reading happened during Saul. There was a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years. So David asked the Lord about it. Why? Why is this famine for three years? Drought. All our crops are not producing. The, and the Lord said, the famine has come because Saul and his family are guilty of murdering the Gibeonites. They are guilty of what? Let's move verse 2. So the king summoned the Gibeonites. They were not part of Israel. So this is a reminder. That story, I'm, that part I'm reading is a reminder. They were not part of Israel, but were all that was left of the nations of the Amorites. The people of Israel had sworn not to kill them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to wipe them out. And God is now avenging Israel. God is angry with Israel. And there is no rain for three years. Their crops were not producing. Things were not going well. Until David has to pray and pray and pray. And God says, I am punishing you because you have decided to wipe away the Gibeonite. Let's move on. Okay, jump to verse 14 for time's sake. Of course, you read the rest. David was trying to ask the Gibeonites. If this is the case, what can we do for you? So that we will be, we will, God, God will be, God will have some mercy on us. So when, when David asked them, the Gibeonites said that we won't take money from you, we won't take silver from you, we won't, do, we won't take anything. But go to, go to the house of Saul and give us only seven men from his house so that we will also kill them. Then our anger will subside. That is all we want from you. And David really went to, to the house of Saul. Whether you are Saul's grandchild or something, once you come from Saul's descendant, he will grab you. And when you read the scriptures, um, let me, this one I think, um, the same Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 7. Go to verse 7. Go to verse 7 and let's see. The king spared Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. When he was speaking the men to go and give to the Gibeonite to kill, he spared Mephibosheth. And the Bible gave us the reason. Who was Saul's grandson? Because of the oath David and Jonathan had sworn before the Lord. So when he was even picking the people, anybody belonging to the descendants of Jonathan, David didn't pick because David has also made an oath with Jonathan. Because of that oath, if you belong to Jonathan, even though you are a descendant of Saul, you are spared. So oath become very powerful. Very, very powerful. But then, he picked the rest of the people and took to them and they also did what they wanted. Let's go to verse 14. Verse 14. Then the king ordered that they bury the bones when they killed the people. They buried the bones in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father at the town of Zela, in the land of Benjamin. After that, God ended the famine in the land. After that. When they killed the seven people and went and buried them, and the Gibeonites were comforted, then God ended the drought. You see, a lot of us are suffering drought in our marriages. <laughs> you can go to any prayer camp. You can run anywhere. You can do anything you can do. You have refused to obey the vow you have taken. Some of us take vows. You see, when we come before the Lord, 
before the Lord's altar and we take all kinds of vow and we don't obey them, we think God will forget. Let me now read the Church of Pentecost vow and then you, those of us who have taken the vow already, you remember the seriousness of what we are saying. Now, if you have made this vow, make sure that you go back to your pastor and ask him for a copy of the vow. Or if you like, just go and buy, just go and buy, how do we call it? Um, the minister's manual. The Church of Pentecost ministerial manual. Everybody can buy. Even if you are a member, you can buy. There is no law against that in the church. Go and buy one and be reading through the vow you have taken. And those of you who are yet to do it, when you are going through counseling, request from your counselors or your pastor if you can get a copy of the vow. Normally, I do that. Before you marry, I give you the vow. I say, go and read it and be sure you want to take it. I don't want you to say the pastor said I should say these words after him. So go and read it yourself. If you don't want to take it, come and tell me, pastor, I don't want to say these words. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, the minister starts. I jump some of the things. The minister says that I require and charge you both as you will answer at the day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts are made known that if either of you knows of any lawful impediment why you may not be joined in marriage, confess it now. And you say you don't do anything. But you remember the pastor says, as you will answer on the day of judgment. So that vow, the way it starts, is already dangerous. Whatever you say on the day of judgment, the law people will tell you that you have the liberty to keep quiet because everything that you say will be held against you at the law court or something. And so whatever vow you are taking here, God will remember it on the day of judgment. If you say all the things, blah, 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 and you treat your wife anyhow, go appear before God that day and you will see. He will throw you to hell because of the vow. If you don't obey them anyway. I'm not saying don't take the vows. Let me just mention to you that vows are not just bad. Quickly, maybe this one, just two minutes. Let me go back to Hebrew and tell you that even God takes vow. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. Hebrews 6, 16. I wanted to jump that, but I think it's very important. He said, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. So if we call God to hold us to the vow, it's not bad. To hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is bound, binding. So anytime you take a vow, the, 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 the vow binds the two of you to make sure the things you have said, you do them. Next verse. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who receive the promise could be perfectly sure that he will never change his mind. And so when you take an oath and you call on someone greater, you call on God to be witness, it means that you are telling the partner that I will never change my mind. Be rest assured, you can fall on me. In Akan, they say, One the person takes the vow, You can trust him. You can trust her. Hmm. But when, when she's putting her head on you and you swerve her and she hits her head on the ground, you appear before the judgment room. Okay, let me come back and read the rest of the vow. You can read that scripture and then... But coming back to the vow, the minister would, would ask the bridegroom, of course the bride would also say, to say, this, to say this in that, I do solemnly and faithfully declare that I do not know of any lawful impediment why I, Christian Chakwe, may not be joined in holy matrimony to Olivia 
Chomana, that time she was Chomana, so that is what I said. Now, I do solemnly mean that with reverence to God and faithfully mean that there is no lie in what I'm saying. Then the minister will continue to say, will you have this man or will you have this woman standing here to be your wedded husband or your wedded wife to live together after God's ordinance, to live together, not to live apart, to live together. That living together is not necessarily means that the two of you are together. There are some people who are in the same room, but they are so wide apart. They are not even roommates. God have mercy on us. To live together after God's ordinance, in the estate of matrimony, will you love her? That word is an abused word. This is one of the reasons why I needed about one month to treat this topic because if we want to explain the meaning of love itself now, it's a different thing altogether. So that word you have said, they are asking, would you love her? Means that you love her. I can't talk about it, unfortunately. Will you comfort her? Comfort. Let's leave that. Will you honor her? That word is deep. From that day you take the oath, your wife becomes honorable. Just like the way we call the politicians honorable. The real honorable in your life is your wife or your husband. So from that day, you cannot say anything to her or him anyhow. Sometimes because of familiarity, the way we talk to our wives, the way we talk to our husband, I'm guilty of that. I, I, myself and my wife, we discovered it in, in the journey of our marriage. Then I told her that, no, I realized that the way I talk to you is not how we should talk to an honorable. And so I want to learn to change it. So anytime I talk to you like that, draw my attention. Sometimes she doesn't do. But when I do that, I remember. And so I became conscious by the grace of God now, it's going away. It's going. I can't say it's completely gone, but it's going away. And surprisingly, when I started doing it to her, it has affected the way she also talked to me and treats me. Then I realized that the thing is reciprocal. And the frank, the truth is that I discovered her own first. And I realized that sometimes the way she talks to me, it's not like I am an honorable. Then I realized that it's because I talked to her like that, so I decided not to change her own. Let me change mine, but I'll tell her I'm changing. And when I change, surprisingly, everybody has changed. Praise the Lord. Yeah, so what I'm trying to say is that honorable means that you should respect the person. Respect your wife. Some people talk to their wives anyhow. Don't you know I am the man? Is that what you said in the vow? Did you say in the vow that I am the man so I will talk to her anyhow? You said I will honor her. Let me just keep. I said I won't explain, so let me go on. And keep her. So please go and look for all these words. Try and find the meaning together. What does it mean to keep her? In sickness and in health, forsaking all other, keep only to her as long as you both shall live. If it is so, say, I will. Then you, may, you open your mouth and say, I will. Some people will even add, please, I will. Some people will say, please, yes, I will. you, The pastor says, say you, you. That's good. There is nothing wrong to add. But make sure that the you may pay. And you, yes, I will. You go and obey. 
Okay, let me read this one. Then, after the pastor had done all those ones, then he said that you should hold your wife's hand. Please, come, let me hold your hand. He said you should hold your wife's hand and say these words to her. And then you hold each other's hand and then you look into each other's face, eyeball to eyeball. This part of the vow, you are not making it to the people or to the pastor, but you are making it to your wife. He said, you see something happening here. She's holding it for me because I can't hold it. <laughs> I call upon these persons here present to witness that I, Christian Chepwe, do take you, Olivia Chomana, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold. That is where the problem is. Please go and look for the meaning of to have and to hold. It is not a poem you have recited. It's a vow you have taken to have and to hold. From this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, the love has come again, and to cherish. Do you understand the meaning to cherish? What kind of things do you cherish? Till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. And now, therefore, I give you this token of my love. Please, you can. Let me do one before you go. You can have your seat, please. Hug is a very powerful medicine, eh? Every morning, just hug each other and tell each other, I love you. It's very wonderful and very powerful. That is one of the things I... <laughs> and the hug too, they say there are differences in the hug. And if you are not married, they say the hug is called a Pentecostal hug, where you do like this and you hug like this. But when you marry, you can hug proper, proper, proper. Praise the Lord. All right, all right. I think that let's stop here. All I want to say is that those of us who have taken the vow, we should take those words we have spoken serious. We shouldn't just take them for granted. These are not the only vow, but I think that we want to pray at this point and then we trust God to help us. What I want to say is that the moment I didn't start my marriage with this, I got to know this along the line. I think after four years of marriage, when God revealed some of these things to me. So I went back, myself and my wife, we decided to go through the vow. We prayed and asked God to forgive us all the wrongs we have done and all the suffering like the, like David did to, with the Gibeonites. God didn't ask us to bring anything. He just said our heart was important for him. So we gave our heart to God. We prayed and asked God to forgive us. And then we worked on ourselves. And frankly speaking, from that time, the rings we have been enjoying. When we married, within the first two weeks, we started fighting. First two weeks of marriage, we started fighting. But when we realized our mistakes and came to God, God blessed us. 2015, I took him for an, an honeymoon in Patmos Island. We went for our honeymoon on Patmos Island. We were on the sea from Athens to Patmos was nine hours on the sea. I enjoyed that trip. And I look forward for another one one day. Yeah. So I want to say that, you see, when you understand marriage, and today I say it with all the confidence that this woman, if, we, if it is true for, that people can die and come back, and I come back to this world, wherever she is, I'll look for her and I'll marry her again. I'll marry her again. I'm enjoying. Frankly speaking, I'm enjoying. And God is blessing me. 
So do you. Okay, so she said she also looked for me. Yeah, so every marriage can work. Of course, I, don't, I said that no two marriages are the same. But from how we started, in fact, if I were not a church elder, I would have divorced her long ago. And if she was not, a, she was a dickness before we married, she would have also divorced me because things were so rough. But today, I was like, I can't believe we are the people behaving like this. So every marriage can work if you understand the vow. And you go back to the drawing board and you confess to each other that I have, been, I have been very wicked to you. I have treated you badly. I didn't obey my vow. Forgive me. And you forgive each other and you pray. God will open the heavens. Rains will begin to fall upon your marriage. And things will begin to work out. Shall we rise to our feet? My name is Sarah Day. My name is Sarah Day. Oh, <laughs> 